Hello everyone, I'd like to welcome you all to the latest installment of Hydrocarbon Processing's podcast series, The Main Column. Today we're going to be looking at the continuation of the history of the HPI series. This one, we're looking at the 1970s. Crises, clean air, plastic bottles, and the DCS. So this podcast is adapted from an article that is featured in the June issue of Hydrocarbon Processing Magazine. So now, the 1970s. The 1970s were marked by several historical events that affected not only the hydrocarbon processing industry, but nations around the world. The decade witnessed two oil crises that would disrupt the global supply of oil and increase prices substantially. New regulations by the U.S. and Europe ushered in an era of clean fuel standards that are still in transition today. Novel technologies introduced in the 1970s revolutionized emissions reductions from vehicles' tailpipes, advanced process controls and automation, and changed the way society drinks carbonated beverages. Now, the decade also witnessed advances in catalytic processing technologies, such as the commercialization of catalytic de-waxing, wax hydroisomerization, and continuous catalytic reforming. For example, Mobile developed the first catalytic de-waxing process in the mid-1970s. The technology, referred to as the MDDW process, utilized the company's zeolite Sacconi Mobile 5 catalyst to increase the cold flow properties of diesel. The invention of the ZSM-5 catalyst was actually detailed in the history of the HPI section in the May issue. Now, in 1971, UOP began operations on the first CCR platforming unit at the Coastal States Refinery in Corpus Christi, Texas, in the United States. So, according to literature, the CCR section enabled refiners to continuously remove coke accumulated on the catalyst. This allowed lower reforming reaction pressures to increase reformate and hydrogen yields, higher reaction temperatures to achieve higher octane levels for gasoline blending, thus enabling lead-free gasoline and increased production of aromatics for use as petrochemical feedstocks. Now let's look at two crises within the industry during that time frame. So the 1970s were rocked by two global crises. Those were the oil embargo of 1973 and the oil crisis of 1979. These two events had detrimental effects on oil importing nations around the world, as well as stressed the importance of energy security. Now first we'll look at the oil embargo of 1973. So the first oil crisis to affect global economies in the 1970s was the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC's, oil embargo in 1973 to 1974. So the embargo was a retaliation against countries that supported Israel during the Yom Kippur War with Syria. In other words, countries like the U.S., Canada, Japan, and a few African and Western European nations. Now, it banned petroleum exports to targeted countries and incorporated crude oil production cuts, which led to a quadrupling of oil prices. So, just to give you an idea of that, oil prices increased from $3 per barrel to nearly $12 per barrel by early 1974, which was an increase of about 300%. Now, the embargo had detrimental effects on nations that were dependent on foreign oil to satisfy domestic demand. Many nations enacted oil rationing programs, as well as banned fuels usage on various days. Now, the high price of oil even led several countries to the brink of recession and proved that oil could be used as an economic weapon. In March 1974, peace talks between Israel and Syria led to the eventual lifting of the oil embargo. However, this would not be the last time within this decade that the world would be caught in a global oil price crisis. Now that brings us to the oil crisis of 1979. So this was the second crisis that significantly affected global oil prices 
in the 1970s, and this was due, due to the Iranian Revolution. Now, that revolution began in early 1978 and ended a year later, and it led to the toppling of the country's leader, Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, and installed Sheikh Khomeini as Grand Ayatollah. Now, the year-long revolution was responsible for knocking off approximately 4.8 million barrels per day of oil production. Now, this only represented about 7% of the world's oil production at the time, but it led global oil prices to nearly double to $39 per barrel. So, in little more than six years removed from the oil embargo crisis, history re began to repeat itself. Several countries started rationing supplies, governments invested billions of dollars in research to find an alternative to oil, and many countries either switched or began to explore switching domestic power generation from oil to other feedstocks such as coal, natural gas, or nuclear. Now, both the 1973 oil embargo and the 1979 oil crisis had dramatic effects on the global marketplace. However, the underlying theme of these global events brought to light the necessity for energy security, which that's a concept that still continues today. So now we're going to shift focus and look at the Clean Air Act of 1970 and how it ushered in a new era of environmental awareness and action. Now, as countries modernized and produced fuels and products for domestic and international markets, a lingering challenge could be felt by local populations, and that was air pollution. Not only did manufacturing plants, refineries, chemical and petrochemical facilities, factories, and other industrial operations produce air pollutants, gasoline burned in internal combustion engines filled the skies with pollutants such as hydrocarbons, carbon monoxide, and nitrogen oxides. Now, in an effort to reduce air pollution, the United States Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, initiated a series of laws and amendments to various industries. The first federal legislation passed to address air pollution in the United States was the Air Pollution Control Act of 1955. Now, although the law did not tackle air pollution directly, it provided funding for research relating to air pollution control. Now, eight years later, the U.S. EPA passed the Clean Air Act of 1963, which enabled the U.S. government to take direct action to control air pollution. And in 1965, an amendment to the Clean Air Act of 1963, which was called the Motor Vehicle Air Pollution Control Act, created the first federal set of standards for vehicle emissions. The Clean Air Amendments of 1970 significantly strengthened federal authority to regulate emissions from both industrial and mobile sources. This amendment included the following major components. One, it established the National Ambient Air Quality Standards for pollutants in outdoor air that can be harmful to the public or the environment. So in other words, things like carbon monoxide, lead, particulate matter, ozone, nitrogen dioxide, and sulfur dioxide. Two, it established new source performance standards to determine how much air pollution should be allowed by different industries. Three, it established the National Emission Standards for Hazardous Air Pollutants to cover all air pollutants not covered by the aforementioned National Ambient Air Quality Standards. And lastly, it called for aggressive air pollution reduction goals, some as high as 90%, for the mobility sector. Now, the significance of the Clean Air Act of 1970 was that it gave the U.S. EPA enforcement authority over domestic emission levels, as well as required U.S. states to issue plans, which were called state implementation plans, on adhering to national air pollution standards. Now, that model is still in use today. The Clean Air Act had several additional amendments added to it over the next 30 years, including major additions during the 1990s to address acid rain, 
ozone depletion, and toxic air pollution, as well as establishing reed vapor pressure standards and new regulations on fuels sold during the months of May to September, in other words, summer grade fuel. Now, although the Clean Air Act was intended to reduce air pollution, especially from the automobile industry, challenges existed on how to mitigate pollutants from an automobile's tailpipe. Now, a solution was put forth in the mid-1950s, but did not fully materialize for the auto industry until the 1970s. This technology can still be found on nearly every vehicle in use today, and that's the catalytic converter. So although prototypes of catalytic converters were introduced in France in the late 1800s, the modern catalytic converter was first patented in the 1950s by a well-known pioneer in the refining industry, and that's Eugene Houdry. Now, Houdry's pioneering work in the creation of catalytic cracking was actually detailed in the history of the HPI segment, which was the February issue of hydrocarbon processing. Now, Houdry began research and development on this technology after studies were released that showed alarming increases in smog in the Los Angeles, California area. Now, these Los Angeles area smog studies in the early 1950s also played a part in similar studies in Western Europe. So around 1956, both French and German scientists were engaged in research to mitigate smog in several major cities in France and Germany. Now, these scientists noticed that several of their respective urban areas suffered from dense air pollution similar to that referenced in the Los Angeles smog reports. Both teams' research into mitigating vehicle emissions eventually led to the implementation of Directive 70-220-EEC in 1970. Now, this groundbreaking piece of legislation was the impetus to setting emission standards for light and heavy-duty vehicles in Europe. The directive eventually led to the introduction of the Euro 1 standard in 1992, which was implemented for passenger cars in 1993. It also led to the removal of leaded petrol from filling stations in Europe and the adoption of three-way catalytic converters. European emission standards, so things like Euro 1 through 6 uh, and eventually Euro 7, which is expected to be implemented in the mid-2020s, would become a global standard for many countries around the world over the next few decades in efforts to adhere to clean fuels regulations. Now in the US, Houdry was concerned that emissions from smokestacks and automobile exhaust were leading to significant air pollution. To reduce emissions from these sources, Houdry created the company OxyCatalyst to develop catalytic converters. His first designs were aimed at mitigating emissions from smokestacks. This effort was followed by the development of catalytic converters for low-grade gasoline-powered forklifts used in warehouses. And in the mid-1950s, Houdry fixed his sights on developing catalytic converters for automobile engines. His technology was patented under the title Catalytic Apparatus to Render Non-Poisonous Exhaust Gases from Internal Combustion Engines on April 17, 1956. However, the widespread adoption of catalytic converters by the automobile industry did not take effect until the passing of the United States Clean Air Act and subsequent amendments. These laws dictated strict regulations on vehicle emissions, as well as the continued removal of lead from gasoline. So incorporating tetraethyl lead into gasoline was first used in the 1920s to prevent knocking in internal combustion engines. The first tetraethyl lead reduction standards, which were part of the U.S. NAAQS standards, were passed into law in the early 1970s. Now, the recognized adverse impacts of emissions from leaded gasoline on human health would lead to the eventual removal of lead from gasoline over the next few decades. Now, just an example, the U.S. banned leaded gasoline in on-road vehicles in 1996. 
Lead was also detrimental to the operation of catalytic converters. Lead acts as a catalyst poison by forming a coating on the catalyst inside the converter, which of course leads to inactivity and increased emissions. Numerous countries in Asia, Africa, Europe, and South America followed suit, and in July 2021, the last batch of leaded gasoline was sold in Algeria. This occasion marked the end of the use of leaded gasoline globally. Now, after the adoption of the Clean Air Act, automobile manufacturers began producing new lines of vehicles that included catalytic converters. However, the Clean Air Act amendments of the 1970s put stringent restrictions on the removal of carbon monoxide, hydrocarbon, and nitrogen oxide emissions. Catalytic converters available at the time were able to reduce carbon monoxide and hydrocarbon emissions, but not nitrogen oxide. Now, this challenge was solved by a group of engineers working at Engelhard Corporation, which is now part of BASF, in Iceland, New Jersey, in the United States. Now, this group was led by chemists Carl Keith and John Mooney. Their revolutionary three-way catalytic converter, introduced in 1973, was able to reduce all three pollutants from a vehicle's tailpipe. Now, according to literature, the technology used rare earth and base metal oxide components in the catalyst, together with a platinum and rhodium in a ceramic honeycomb with tiny passages coated with the catalytic material. So this enabled their design to remove carbon monoxide, hydrocarbon, and nitrogen oxide in a single catalytic component. And this three-way catalytic converter was installed in most vehicles in 1976 and is still in use today. Switching now, we're looking at the evolution of the distributed control system. In 1959, Texaco started operations on the first digital control computer at a refinery. This system, which was a Thompson Ramo Woodridge RW300 computer, became the first fully automatic computer-controlled industrial process and ushered in the computer-integrated manufacturing area in the hydrocarbon processing industry. If you want to find out more about this particular event, there is a detailed account on this within the History of the HPI section in the April issue of Hydrocarbon Processing. Now, additional technologies such as Programmable Logic Controllers, or PLCs, were incorporated into plant operations in the late 1960s and early 1970s. These devices were pioneered by Richard Morley of Bedford Associates, which is now part of Schneider Electric, and Otto Joseph Struger of Allen Bradley, which is now part of Rockwell Automation. Both inventors are known as the father of PLCs, with Struger even coining the acronym PLC. So the history of PLCs is detailed in the history of the HPI section of the May issue of Hydrocarbon Processing. Allen Bradley also introduced Data Highway in 1979, which was the first plant floor network designed to support remote programming and messaging between computers and controllers, which replaced miles of wiring in plant operations. Now, in 1975, another revolutionary technology was unveiled to optimize refining and petrochemical plant operations, which was the Distributed Control System, or what we'll refer to as the DCS. Now, the first DCSs were introduced by Honeywell and Yokogawa. Bristol, which is now part of Emerson Process Management, also introduced the UCS 3000 in 1975, which was the first microprocessor-based universal controller. So prior to the DCS, plant operations were controlled via board operation. In other words, controllers were mounted on large instrument panels. However, through the evolution and wide-scaled availability of microcomputers and microprocessors, the DCS was created to control manufacturing processes in several industries, 
including oil refining and petrochemicals production. Honeywell and Yokogawa both introduced their own DCSs around the same time. Yokogawa created Sintum, while Honeywell introduced the TDC2000 platform. Now, according to literature, Yokogawa's journey to the DCS included applying microprocessors to control systems. And then these control systems were divided into three basic components, human-machine interface, controllers, and control bus. Now, the system was named DCS and was instrumental in controlling various functions of plant operations. So, for an example, flow. Now, in the early to mid-1970s, Honeywell worked extensively at optimizing automation technologies, as well as focusing on advancing process controls. The company introduced the TDC-2000, which TDC stood for Total Distributed Control, and that system was introduced in 1975. So this system provided a centralized view of processes within the plant and utilized a data highway that could link various sensor data to a central location. Plant personnel could monitor and modify several control loops in a single system. The TDC-2000 was used globally for about a decade until being replaced by TDC-3000 in 1985, followed by Experian in the 2000s. Now, in 1978, Valmet introduced the Domatic Classic Automation System, which was installed at Panka Board's board mill in Leixa, Finland. That DCS operated for about 40 years in that location before being replaced by the latest iteration, which is called Valmet DNA, in 1998. So other digital companies introduced new technologies during the 1970s and 1980s to optimize process controls and automation in the HPI. In the late 1970s, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT, created an energy laboratory to facilitate collaboration between university and industry. Now, this effort materialized out of the energy crisis of the 1970s. Led by M MIT professor of chemical engineering Larry Evans and funded by the U.S. Department of Energy, the Advanced System for Process Engineering project began in 1977. In other words, they were called ASPEN. Now, according to literature, the ASPEN project set about to develop a general-purpose simulation system that could be used by chemical engineers across the entire process industries. The result was the project was the next generation process simulator named Aspen. This technology could simulate large complex processes involving highly non-ideal chemical components, coals and synthetic fuels, as well as electrolytes and multi-phase systems. And in 1981, the software was commercialized by the new company, Aspen Tech, which released its first product, Aspen Plus, in 1982. Several direct digital control technologies were released in the 1970s, which included Fox Burroughs, which is now part of Schneider Electric's Fox One system for plant monitoring and process control. Fisher Controls, now part of Emerson, they introduced the DC2 system and Provox DCS. Taylor Instrument Companies and Bailey Controls, which are now both part of ABB, they introduced the 1010 system and the 1055 system, respectively. Now, process automation continued to evolve over the next several decades, including the move to Ethernet-based networks, field bus installations, wireless systems and protocols, increased cyber defenses, remote transmission, and many other advances to optimize plant operations. So now we'll be looking at polyethylene terephthalate solving the carbonated liquids container challenge. Now, in 1941, DuPont scientists John Winfield and James Dixon expanded on Wallace Crothers, who was a fellow DuPont colleague, his work on synthetic fibers. 
Crothers' research was instrumental in the discovery of neoprene, nylon, and other synthetic fibers. So if you want to know more about those discoveries, those are detailed in the February issue of Hydrocarbon Processing's History of the HPI section. Now through their research, they discovered how to condense terephthalic acid and ethylene glycol into a new polymer that could be drawn into a fiber. Now their work eventually led to the development of polyethylene terephthalate, or PET. Winfield and Dixon patented their discovery in Great Britain in 1941 and later in the United States in 1945. However, due to wartime secrecy, the invention was not made public until seven years later. PET would become the basis for many products used in everyday life, and today, PET is the fourth most produced polymer. Now, one of the primary reasons for its popularity is its stretchability into long, hard fibers, which makes it ideal to produce films and containers, among other items, that are lightweight, hard, and durable. Now, using blow molding on PET created a product in the early 1970s that would revolutionize how societies enjoy different beverages, and that's the plastic bottle. Now, the first plastic bottle was created in the late 1940s by cosmetic chemist Jules Montanet. At the time, Montanet was trying to find a suitable container for his liquid antiperspirant called Stop It. Now, prior to this invention, antiperspirants were applied usually as a cream or in liquid form by dabbing it on using an applicator or pad. Now, he turned to a chemical polymer discovered approximately a decade before called polyethylene. Now, if you want a detailed account on the discovery of polyethylene, it's published in the Hydrocarbon Processing History of the HPI section in the February issue. Now, in 1947, Montanay partnered with the Plax Corporation of Hartford, Connecticut in the United States. That company actually used blow molding to manufacture plastic Christmas tree ornaments. Now, their partnership produced the Stop It spray bottle, which was the first commercially sold in July of 1947, and this event marked the beginning of plastic containers competing against glass. However, plastic containers remained expensive until the invention of high-density polyethylene, or HDPE, in the 1950s by J. Paul Hogan and Robert L. Banks while working at the Phillips Petroleum Company in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. Now, that discovery of uh, high-density polyethylene was detailed in the April issue of Hydrocarbon Processing Magazine. Now, several new uses of plastic bottles were commercialized over the next two decades, including the plastic milk bottle, which was patented by Roy Josephin, Joseph Tino, and Charles Fulcher of W.R. Grayson Company, and that was in 1965. Like Winfield and Dixon, Nathaniel Wythe also worked at DuPont. Now, prior to the late 1960s, he invented several products for the company, including a machine that built dynamite cartridges automatically, which kept workers from inhaling poisonous nitroglycerin powder, and a machine to manufacture Typar, a propylene fabric used in industrial sectors such as construction. So in 1967, Wythe began experimenting with the possibility of using plastic bottles to store carbonated beverages. Now, conventional wisdom at the time was that plastic bottles could not hold the pressure of carbonated beverages and would explode. So to test this theory, Wythe filled a plastic detergent bottle with ginger ale, sealed it, and then he placed it in his refrigerator. So according to literature, the next morning, the bottle had swelled so much that it was lodged between the refrigerator shelves. This experiment proved to Wythe that a stronger plastic was needed to withstand the pressure of carbonated liquids. So his work was with polypropylene, However, he switched to PET due to its superior elastic properties. 
Now, after several experiments, Wythe invented a machine that produced a hollow biaxial oriented thermoplastic. This machine would strengthen the plastic by creating a mold that had nylon thread running in a diamond crisscross pattern. When the mold was pressed, the molecules aligned in a biaxial fashion. So this created a light, clear, and resilient product that could withstand the pressure of carbonated liquids. And on May 15, 1973, Wythe received a U.S. patent for his biaxially oriented PET bottle machine. Now, although PET plastic bottles were more expensive than glass when first introduced into the market, they had many more benefits, such as they were lighter, they were not easily breakable, and they could be resealed. Eventually, due to increased manufacturing, the cost for PET plastic bottles decreased significantly, and companies like Coca-Cola and Pepsi brought PET plastic bottles to the global masses, and PET plastic bottle uses has soared globally over the past several decades. So as an example, in 2021, more than 580 billion PET plastic bottles were produced, which was an increase of nearly 100 billion per year since 2016, and it reached a total market value of nearly $40 billion. And industry reports actually forecast that PET plastic bottle market is expected to reach more than $50 billion by 2027. Now we're going to look at infrastructure that rises from the Saudi desert, Jabal and Yambu, and the master gas system. So in 1975, Saudi Arabia's government commissioned the construction of two new industrial cities, one on each of its coasts, Jabal in the east and Yambu in the west. These cities were the result of the country's growing wealth from oil production and global trade and would serve as major industrial complexes to produce refined fuels and petrochemical products to satisfy domestic demand and for export. Now, around the same time frame, Aramco, the company would actually not adopt the name Saudi Aramco until the late 1980s, began work on the country's master gas system. Now, the system's goal was to gather and utilize associated natural gas that was being flared or wasted from domestic production and use it as a low-cost fuel for industrialization. So this capital-intensive project included the construction and operation of gas-gathering infrastructure, treating and processing facilities, and a transmitting system. And by the mid-1980s, the master gas system was able to produce up to 2 billion cubic feet per day of natural gas. And over the next 40 years, the company significantly expanded the system's total capacity with the ability to produce approximately 12.5 billion cubic feet of natural gas by the early 2020s. So let's look now at Jabal Industrial City. So Jabal's origins actually date back more than 7,000 years, and it garnered fame in 1933 as the initial landing spot for Standard Oil of California, which is now Chevron, their geologists in their search for oil in the country. So in the mid-1970s, Jabal was little more than a fishing village. However, it did have several benefits for the country. The city's location was ideal for shipping, it had ample water supplies to cool industrial plants, and it was near crucial domestic oil production fields. So the scope of the mega project was to convert Jabal into a large-scale industrial city. The Saudi government selected two agencies to oversee the city's construction. One was the General Petroleum and Mineral Organization, or Petromin, and the Saudi Basic Industries Corp, or SABIC. The, the project's developers selected American-based engineering construction and project management firm Bechtel to design and build the industrial city. Jabal Industrial City was an effort by the Saudi government to reach self-sufficiency and refine in petrochemical products. So the city covers more than 1,000 square kilometers, 
and includes a multitude of industrial infrastructure, including the 440,000 barrel per day Satorp refinery, which is a joint venture between Saudi Aramco and Total Energies, and the Sadara Petrochemical Complex, which is a joint venture between Saudi Aramco and the Dow Chemical Company. Now looking at the other coast in Yambu, the Saudi government decreed the construction of a second industrial city in Yambu. The city's origin dates back more than 2,500 years when it was used as a staging point on the spice and incense route from Yemen to Egypt and various countries around the Mediterranean. This sister industrial city to Jabal would be smaller, but due to its proximity on the Red Sea, would be crucial as an import and export port for the country. Now, over the next several decades, additional hydrocarbon processing facilities would be built there, including refineries, petrochemical plants, and other supporting infrastructures such as pipelines and storage. Today, Jabal and Yambu are the first and fourth largest industrial cities, respectively, in the world. Again, we want to thank you for listening to the latest installment of Hydrocarbon Processing's podcast series, The Main Column.